but I'm very cognizant of what's directly behind, you know, over my shoulders and looking behind because the camera can see it. So you have to uh, have an awareness of that. And not everybody does, but I, I kind of playing into what you're saying. Yes. Some people definitely have some distracting backgrounds or things that like you're, you're staring at it going, what the hell is that? But at the same time, I kind of feel like someone should play into this. And and I'm I'm advocating for someone to do this. I'm I'm not condoning, just so we're clear, but I'm advocating and encouraging. I really just want to see someone who's super straight laced. I don't care who it is, in media or sports or whatever. I want someone who's super straight laced with a, a total reputation for professionalism to literally set up the background intentionally just to see so many people see it. I really want to see someone try to fashion a sex dungeon behind them. I like it. Don't like play into it at all. Like literally you got to be stone cold faced and like everyone's just staring going like, why is there a sex dungeon behind you? (laughs) How long has that been? And then literally everyone is distracted. It genuinely doesn't matter what you say or what analysis you're giving or whatever. Why is there a sex dungeon? Twitter would explode. You are listening to episode 51 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast, the podcast of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they like to know nothing about through an indeterminate timeline in a hastily thrown together format, which was actually planned and thrown together this week. I'm Carlos Agazar, and after digging his own fiber optic cable with his bare hands, returning, uh, I'll say triumphantly, but not so much, um, sadly, or, you know, shamefully returning, Dave Turnbull. Hey, man. First of all, that was a hard job really hard job to get all that done with my bare hands and second of all you should be a little more grateful because i know that people are happy to see me back and by see i mean here do you realize that the last two episodes not only did they get the mysterious roberto Algazar, who basically came out of his shut-in you know cave to do a podcast shockingly and not only that not only that the following episode they got a full all video episode if they went to the youtube channel I'm sorry, like right now we bought the sizzle and the steak and then now we're back to um, McDonald's Happy Meal that's three days old and stale. Okay, but you also put on Roberto to talk about basically to make fun of me by talking about yes. games that some of some of which neither of you have actually seen. So I don't understand how you can make fun of a game and, and my choice for a game when you haven't actually watched it. Because you were still wrong. No, but you don't know that unless you actually watched it. You were wrong. No, you were wrong. No, you you were wrong objectively. That's the beauty of it, is that the argument wasn't about the specific game. I actually didn't care what happened in the game. It was still wrong. You know what? Whatever makes you sleep at night, Carlos. And it does. This uh, In quarantine, I sleep great. Thanks for asking, Dave. Hey, no problem. Someone's got to look out for you. Anyway, we brought you back in, you know, after the fiber optic cable, you know, after, you know, decades of slacking off, finally you did some real work for a living, which is wonderful. I, I applaud you for that. But obviously it's been some downtime. So other than doing fiber optic cable, what's going on? Well, uh, the move is complete, uh, and internet came three days later than it was supposed to, but it did arrive. As it does. Uh, TV arrived, and so we're sort of settling in here. It's it's weird and also not weird. Like it's it part of it is nice to have the time to be able to, you know, settle in, do the unpacking, you know, get the things that up like some of the you know new furniture you bought that you put together or things like that to actually have the time to put them up as well as you know be a dad, uh, but. A part of it is like, you know, I kind of still wish I was, you know, going to work and doing all that regular stuff too. Moving words from you. Moving words. Hey, you know what? Uh, That's the best I can do considering the, you know, the circumstances of quarantine and waking up early repeatedly. Shocking. I, I just love the fact that you called it going to work. I was like, great. When does that start? 
Okay, fair enough. From this end of it, it's been a lot of the same. The last two episodes, obviously, we were able to do some things. I really liked uh, being able to play with the video aspect of it. it. It's tricky to do because it's easier with a solo pod just because I can get the whole setup going. I can control kind of the video environment. I'm still playing around with the idea. I'd still love to add a video component to the regular podcast, but it requires a lot of logistics because at the end of the day, it's not just a matter of setting it up. It's you got to have a place to put it. It's got to look not completely crummy. And obviously, webcams are always going to look crummy, mind you. In the era of the quarantine thing, if you watch what ESPN did, and we're going to talk about the NFL's attempt at this, Zoom calls are now the thing, and you can really get a sense of um, the differences in different people's internets, which is hilarious. It's kind of enjoyable. Yeah, it, it is. It's also kind of nice to see like where people choose to be when they're on Zoom. You know, when they're portraying themselves in front of you know an audience of potentially millions of people, it's like, oh. So that's what you have in the background or, you know, and I find sometimes I find myself paying more attention to what's in the background than what's actually going on. Uh, so, for example, I did watch uh, the semifinals of the NBA horse tournament that they did. Oh, Jesus. OK. Where they had I can't and I can't remember the guy's name. He was in Miami, who was like the host of the show. And, okay. and he had two jerseys in the background. And I just kept going back and forth between his jerseys. And because that song was on low because other stuff was going on, too. So I was like. I don't really actually care what you have to say, but I'm more interested in the sports memorabilia that you have in the background. Well, this is both the intrigue and the danger of doing any kind of a live like Zoom call thing. And as kind of a veteran of somebody who understands what needs to be done, because I've referenced it before, but this is not the first podcast I did. And the thing is, the old one was literally a live stream. It was a video live stream. So what that meant is I had a camera pointing at me. I could see myself and I also knew what was behind me. And I've literally did that podcast in the same you know, office that I'm doing it in today, but I'm very cognizant of what's directly behind, you know, over my shoulders and looking behind because the camera can see it. So you have to uh, have an awareness of that and not everybody does, but I, I kind of playing into what you're saying. Yes. Some people definitely have some distracting backgrounds or things that like you're, you're staring at it going, what the hell is that? But at the same time, I kind of feel like someone should play into this and, and I'm, I'm advocating for someone to do this. I'm, I'm not condoning just so we're clear, but I'm advocating and encouraging. I really just want to see someone who's super straight laced. I don't care who it is. In media or sports or whatever, I want someone who's super straight laced with a, uh, a total reputation for professionalism to literally set up the background intentionally just to see so many people see it. I really want to see someone try to fashion a sex dungeon behind them. I like it. Don't like play into it at all. Like literally, you got to be stone cold faced and like everyone's just staring going like, why is there a sex dungeon behind you? <laughs> How long has that been? And then literally everyone is distracted. It genuinely doesn't matter what you say or what analysis you're giving or whatever. Why is there a sex dungeon? Twitter would explode. I like it. I like it. These are the ideas I bring to the table, people. Like I said, right now, this is a pandemic. This is a tough time for a lot of folks. But depending on who you are, if you're more like the introverted and don't really like hanging out with people like, say, me, I will look back on this era as what I think history should consider it, the golden era. Fair enough. Hey, somebody's got to enjoy it, and I do. But uh, let me lean into, this is actually a really great segue. So is there anything else you want to add as terms of personal updates? You know what? I... <laughs> One thing I would like to say, and, and I still don't, I mean, I get it and I don't get it, but the the differences between the same business in different, you know, a chain in different cities can be mind-blowing okay. sometimes. Yeah, it's true. But okay, what in particular oh, are you referring to? Well, okay. So in Canadian Tire in Waterdown, right? Uh, <laughs> you're playing right in my wheelhouse. Please continue. I know. That's why I, that's why I was yeah. saving this for you. Go on. Right. So I ordered some stuff online. I call, yeah. you know, you go, you pull into the parking space, you call the number. It came out right away. No issues. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. I'm, I'm happy. Okay, in Ancaster, you go in and, you know, same thing. In this case, you pull up to, their spots are a little bit different, but you pull up to a spot, you call the number and they're like, what's your name? And they're like, this is my name. And they're like, okay. And then they come out to your car and then they t- they confirm your order. Then they go back in and then they come back out with the order. And it's like, why don't you just confirm everything over the phone and come out with the order in the first place? Because one, it saves time. And two, it saves them interaction. Or, you know, even though they are, we're staying, you know, more than six feet away. Yeah, yeah. That saves them interaction with people. Like, it's like, this is really dumb system. Well, okay. So... I don't work for Canadian Tire, but I'm adjacent. Let's put it that way. I'm adjacent to working for Canadian Tire. But the but I will give them a little bit of a pass on this in the sense that while I don't have any insight into the direct retail piece of it, I do have some understanding. And I can tell you that because uh, Canadian Tire stores, and by the way, this applies to any chain of any retail anywhere, wherever you are. So this isn't just limited to one thing. Everyone's kind of making stuff up as they go along. And I will tell you that someone proposed the system that you're referring to, but because a lot of the stores are kind of dealer operated, they're taking this and then they're kind of adding their own spin to it. And they're trying to figure out as we go along how to actually execute it. So the variation you're talking about is they're both kind of doing the same thing, but one of them thought to do everything on the phone while the other one says, oh, okay, go confirm it and then come back and then we'll figure it out. And I can tell you a different business entirely, LCBO. So that one kind of plays into Roberto's wheelhouse. And I can tell you that LCBO, um, up until this point, they had been doing the social distancing. They've started to adapt, right? They've added like the uh, like the plexiglass, you know, protection for people and all that. They've been adding that in. But like if you go to different stores, you're going to see different versions of that because they're not all getting made at the same place. So it's kind of the same issue is that, yeah, you've got the same idea, but how you're applying it, like you're trying to get sources wherever you can. You're like, well, we need a plexiglass thing. Well, where can we get one? Oh, I think I can order it from this because I know this company. And then a different store will be like, well, I know this other person who can get it to me faster or cheaper or whatever. So each store is kind of doing its own thing, even though they're trying to do the same basic concept. Yeah. But one of the big changes that's recent, uh, and Roberto let me kind of uh, know a little bit about this, and it's, they've started to implement it. In the same vein, you can still go into the store and get your stuff. However, they let you now order through the website, which you could do before. That's that's not different. But now you can order through the website and you can do um, – I forget what they call it, but basically it's it's not curbside pickup. But it's basically like you can prepay and basically call ahead and say, you know, do you have my stuff? And then there's like a counter where they just hand you your stuff that's already been bagged up. They just do the ID check and go, and you're on your way. Nice. So it's like it's still the LCBO, but by doing that, it's like a bunch of people can just go to the one counter. So somebody literally goes there early in the morning before the store even opens to fulfill these orders so that they're already bagged up and ready to go so that you don't actually have to spend time wandering the store. You go straight to the counter, do your business, grab your stuff, make sure you give them the ID so they know it's you, and then go take your stuff. You already paid for it. Go home. Yeah. So I think everybody's trying to kind of adapt to it. And the thing is, and this is a point that I made uh, kind of chatting with the family last weekend. Um, I think that particular one, out of all the things, I don't see any reason why they couldn't keep that. Even when we're kind of quote unquote back to normal, I would love to just be able to pre-order my stuff, walk in, flash my ID, grab my stuff and take it take it away with me. I don't even have to wander the aisles or do anything. Yeah, I think, you know, I think obviously some things I think are going to permanently change. And I think some of the way businesses are are operating. I think may actually end up being better for the business and the consumer. And we might see the continuation of that. I mean, I actually kind of like the curbside pickup stuff, right? Because, yeah. you know, you minimize your time. 
Yep. Uh, you know, you don't have theoretically you don't have to go online. You could I mean, depends on the store, but yeah. you could just call and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Uh, and if you, you know, get someone who's nice, they'll be they you know might look it up for you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you just, you know, you can pay with a credit card over the phone or you can pay with a credit card online, whatever. And then you just show up and say, I'm here and they bring it out to your car. Yeah. I would say the biggest impact though, and I think this is a big thing and I can tell you. So using the Canadian Tire example again, I can tell you that their website traffic has like 10x since what no. they would consider. For sure. Yeah. even the And the thing is though, the upside, I suppose, if you want to, you know, look at a, you know, glass half full kind of situation is going forward. Their online merchandising, you know, ordering system has suddenly become a lot more robust out of necessity. So it means going forward into the future, they're going to be much better able to fulfill online orders, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that's a good thing for them going forward, even in the future. Yeah. So I think that's one thing. And I think the LCBO one, like I said, from a convenience standpoint, because the thing is when I'm going to order something at the LCBO, um, and for those who aren't familiar, that's the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. That's just where you order your beers and your whiskeys, your spirits and all that, You know, basically the liquor store. But the thing is that when you order it, I already know what I want most of the time. Sometimes there are people who like to do window shopping or whatever, but obviously even when we get back to quote unquote normal, I already know what I want most of the time. So it's super convenient for me to like pre-order and basically just walk in and get my stuff and walk right back out and go do my other errands. I don't mind having that option going forward. I would still use that if that was given to me as an option. Yeah. Well, we'll see, so what, ha- we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. So that's just the thing, realistically. Uh, one other quick point I'll make, actually. Uh, part of the conversation reminded me. So I've been playing around with uh, the new iPad Air. So I kind of alluded to it, I think, a little while ago. And um, I ended up picking it up. And it's kind of fun to play around with. But the biggest thing that I found, and this should be kind of a shame for Apple. Um, I like my uh, my MacBook Pro laptop, which is what I've done to uh, edit videos and to edit the podcast and do all kinds of things. I still edit the podcast on this most of the time, but I will say to you, the last uh, episode 50 was available obviously in audio form, which I made sure to upload that, but I created a full-fledged video. So if you haven't seen it, you can check it out at the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast YouTube channel. And that was all video. I even put some stuff on the screen as I was talking and whatever, and I did all my hand talking, which is what I do. But part of it, part and parcel of it is that I did all the editing or the heavy lifting on the editing on the iPad, which was kind of crazy. I, I had heard that you could do it. This isn't the top of the line model, by the way, but I know that some of the new ones, like the iPad Pros, you can basically get the uh, covers that allow you to have a full-fledged keyboard with a trackpad. In other words, quote unquote, the iPad Pro is basically playing laptop, but with the touchscreen, yeah. which is kind of crazy. So I'm liking the direction they're going with that. I, I think there's potential in it. I, I just like the form factor of be, having something I can car- carry around with me, take notes with the pencil, and then be able to tr- immediately transfer that. And it's been kind of fun to play around with. And I found some utility with it already, I can say. That's awesome, man. So it's one of those things. Even the notes we're talking about on this podcast right now, the notes are sitting on the iPad right now. And I'm scrolling through as we're talking, making sure, yep, check. We talked about that. Yep, check. We're going to talk about that. It's not for everybody. It is an overpriced piece of equipment. Let's get this right. It is an overpriced piece of equipment. But if you have a utility for it, it's kind of cool. And I like the way they're going for it. I think we're a generation away. The next generation, I think they've almost got a laptop replacement. Not quite there, but getting they got 85% of the functionality that I would want. And if they can make sure this thing's got a little more power, I think we're right there. There you go, man. The future's looking good in some in some aspects, at least from a technology standpoint. So I like that. All right, cool. So speaking of technology, love the segue. You ready for some 2020 NFL first time ever virtual draft, Dave? Yeah, man. I am. All right. I got a bunch of stuff here. I even got I got pages of notes. But before I get into that. 
just generally speaking, did you actually watch the virtual draft? I did not. I followed it a little bit on my phone in terms of uh, who's picking who and, and more so in the first round. And obviously I followed what the Saints were doing. But in terms mm-hmm. of actually watching it, no. Uh, for for me, the NFL draft goes on way too long. Yes, it does. You know, and, and that's just, you know, and I don't follow, for whatever reason, I don't follow college football. And for whatever reason, I don't find... I know enough of who the people are, except for obviously a few people. Like obviously, I know who Joe Burrow is. Obviously, I know who T- uh, Tua is, but but I don't know as many people as I would say in basketball. Even though I really only watch college basketball during March Madness, but that sort of seems to be enough to get a lot of the names that are coming out in the first round. So I, I find the NBA draft more interesting than the NFL draft personally. I think the March Madness thing is just because a lot of those higher end prospects, that's a big showcase for them. Whereas in college football, there are just so many players. A lot of the, like the obvious names always come up. Everybody knows about the Joe Burrows. They look at the Tua's. They look at, you know, um, Chase Young. They look at some of those people and they get their names get repeated over and over again where people at least have an idea who they are. But then you'll end up with these players who are probably very good. Um, but you just don't know that much about them. It's it's not that people don't want to understand. And kind of to your point, though, you do have to kind of watch a lot of college football. And the thing is, there's a lot of college football teams. Division one is huge. There are a lot of teams and, and a lot of potentially great players scattered. Obviously, you know, some of the big tier teams in the big bowl games are going to have uh, a large sum of some of the top talent. But that doesn't mean there isn't great talent in some of these other teams that you just don't get to see as much. As far as your point, though, about you, for some reason, not watching a lot of college football, well, that's just because you're a bad person. But well, I, I often tell you that. Whatever. But I mean, also, but this by the time you get to, you know, like the 200th pick and whatever, like, unless it's your team, who cares? Unless you're super, super into college football, which most people who watch the draft aren't. I don't think the people covering the draft are that much into college football. I think they kind of make things up as they go along. Fair enough. They're like, yeah, they'll watch like five minutes of tape and it's like, oh, it looks good. Looks athletic. Yeah. So let me let me make a couple of points about the NFL virtual draft. I watched until maybe about so I, I sat down because it's like it's really outside of the WNBA draft, and I think one of the one of the NFL guys said, "Oh, finally the first you know like live sporting thing in a while," and then they got hammered because they didn't realize the WNBA draft had been on ESPN la- the fall, the previous week. Right. Right, um, right. In fairness, in fairness, I don't think the viewership was that high on it, but like I get it. But Twitter gets really angry about a lot of things. The point is though. This was, for a lot of people, uh, the first, let's, let's call it major sport uh, thing that has happened out of you know MLB, NFL, NHL, and uh, the NBA. So this is the first one of those that has happened, at least is somewhat live. Um, what made it interesting is that obviously, you know, the NFL tried to make the best out of it by calling it the first ever virtual draft. But to me, what I think the most interesting, part of the reason I wanted to tune in and sit down and watch and I made my notes was obviously I'm interested in the top picks, but the real reason I was interested is I wanted to see what the broadcast would look like. I was genuinely curious how they would approach this, how they would try to present it to people watching on television who were kind of a captive audience. I don't know what rating they got for this, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did okay. My thought process was basically you ended up with Roger Goodell playing MC. Um, and they even tried to play into the Roger Goodell thing where uh, they basically piped in people in Zoom booing him. And he was like encouraging them to boo louder. And I was like, okay, so this is cringe. I appreciate that at least you acknowledge this is a thing. And you tried to bring it into the virtual draft. Hey, we've got virtual fans booing you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, Roger Goodell tried, I guess. I, I, I think the biggest problem, and uh, on the Bill Simmons podcast, they did bring it up. Roger Goodell has the personality of um, dried tree bark. So having him try to play MC is kind of painful. 
the other big technological, so there were no big technical hiccups that I could see. Uh, everything seemed to work more or less well, but I would say having kind of the Zoom call happening with all the analysts was kind of awkward because it was tricky. There, there's always like delays whenever you do anything live like that. So everybody kind of finding their turn to talk ends up being kind of weird and it forces the host to be like, okay, now you talk. And then as soon as you're done, okay, now you talk. Otherwise you end up with these awkward silences and pauses in between uh, picks and doing the analysis. Yeah, exactly. So that's just from a broadcast standpoint. Those are a couple of major things that I noticed. And obviously the picks themselves were kind of, I, I would say a lot of the early picks basically went vanilla. Joe Burrow went number one to the shock of no one. Seeing the players inside of their houses, and I'm going to say their houses, although some of the players are like, really? Is, is that your house? Or is that a friend's house? Or is that your agent's house? Because it seems like a pretty nice house for somebody who hasn't been drafted yet. You haven't received a dime. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, it was kind of interesting to see where they were doing it because obviously they had, some of the top picks had had cameras inside of there to to see their genuine reaction to getting picked in the NFL draft. And of course they had the hats. Yeah, of course. So it's one of those things where like, well, did the team already tell you they were going to draft you, or did you have like your choice of twelve hats? And then somebody's like, all right, grab the, you know, grab the Cincinnati one. They didn't trade you. They didn't trade the pick. Or so on and so forth. There really wasn't a trade of any kind until um, I think it was number twelve or number thirteen. So it's kind of interesting that really most of it went vanilla. You got Joe Burrow to, um, and, we'll, and I'll, I'll pause in a second if you have any thoughts on any specific pick. But you had Joe Burrow go number one, which is the shock of no one. Uh, Chase Young to number two to to Washington, to shock of no one. And I think where it came down to, and then number five, uh, Tua ended up going to the Dolphins, which was kind of uh, again. Not horribly shocking because the Dolphins did need a quarterback and they might as well take a shot on Tua. And it was, but it was, I guess it was kind of interesting in the sense that you were wondering if there was going to be any kind of trade action in the first couple of picks and uh, everything kind of played to chalk for the most part. Yeah. And I think there, I mean, the sound, I think, sorry, mumbling there. But the thing I found interesting about it was the fact that there was so much talk going into it about Miami trying to trade up, right? And mm -hmm. thinking they would need to do that to get Tua and they didn't. Yeah. I found, I found that particularly intriguing. It was. It was a little bit surprising. But I guess the I guess at the end of the day, the big thing was that um, Miami didn't end up having to tank, which was kind of surprising. In the end, they wrecked their own tank. The tank didn't happen. And they still ended up kind of getting their guy. So I guess, you know, congratulations to Miami, I suppose. Yeah, that it, that was quite entertaining, if you will, in, in that aspect of things being like, oh, uh, hey. You know, you did, everything that you thought you had to do, you didn't have to do. And it's kind of, you know, all said and done with. I think that's good news, sir. Brian Flores, though, in the Miami staff. In the end, they still got the guy and they and they were able to be competitive down the stretch, which is encouraging for the fan base. If I'm a Dolphins fan, I'm like, great. At least we tried to win. You know, we still weren't good, but we tried to win a little bit. And we still got uh, everything with Tua's health. Who knows? Um, if he if his body is going to be able to hold up because he has all, he had a lot of injuries in college. But what he showed, he showed great talent, but that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I kind of feel, in some ways, like, I feel sorry for Joe Burrow. In some ways, I don't. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's unless there's some kind of massive trade that goes down, obviously, the, the number one pick is going to go to a team that was garbage, uh, you know, or, or had some kind of weird injury bug that took everybody down. On one hand, it's nice for him. He's going back to his home state. You know, he's from Ohio. Uh, and yeah. I think I think for him that's good. Yeah, I just think he's going to get crushed, like physically. I think he's going to be a good NFL quarterback. I think he's got all the tools to be successful. Obviously, he's got uh, a decent receiver already there. Uh, the name is escaping. Is his last name Green? 
I think it's AJ Green. Yeah, really. AJ Green. Okay. And for some reason, I was mi- mixing him up with like SJ Green, who I believe is a CFL receiver. That's right. CFL content for you. Uh, but they also drafted a receiver as well, uh, or higher up, like earlier. I think it was the first pick of the second round, right? Because they had the first pick of the second round too. I believe they drafted a receiver. So it looks like they're trying to give him some stuff, which is good. I don't know if the offensive line is going to hold up, uh, which is kind of, you know, the most important thing to not getting destroyed as a quarterback. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I wish him luck and see what happens with that. Uh, obviously, the other thing that everyone's talking about is the the Green Bay Packers drafting a quarterback with their first pick. Oh, we're going to get we're going to get into that in a second. All right. It's, all right. Um, hang on for one second. You know, and I so I will mention as, as the homer for the Saints here. Uh, you know, the first pick was an offensive lineman. Then they drafted a linebacker. They did a little bit of trading up in the later rounds to get a linebacker and then uh, a tight end. Tight end kind of surprised me a little bit. Uh, but in terms of, you know, them trying to beef up their offensive line when they have a potential a couple people leaving at the end of this season and they need help. Uh, well, they need more linebackers because a couple of the big guys had left in free agency. So I have no issues with the picks they made in in the places they had to. Obviously, there was talk about maybe trying to do a little bit more wheeling and dealing. It didn't happen uh, to any crazy degree. But, you know, I seem to think that the picks they made are solid. And we'll see how it turns out. Sounds fair. So let me give you a couple of the notes that I took uh, while I was watching. As I said, I watched maybe about the first uh, 15 or 16, maybe even 17 picks. I don't remember exactly, but I only took notes on certain specific ones. But uh, let me throw a couple at you here. Uh, Let me ignore the Burrow one because that's not interesting. Let me see. Oh, here we go. So first one, uh, number three, uh, the Lions selected... I'm I'm hoping I I I spelled this correctly. The Lions select Jeff Okuda. Uh, and my response was not too familiar with him, but it's the Lions, so it doesn't really matter. Correct. I agree. Uh, yeah. And then number four, the Giants selected Andrew Thomas. My response was, who? Of course, it's the Giants. And in the same vein, uh, so now the Dolphins, when they picked two, obviously, that worked out, I think, well for them. We'll see. His health is the big issue. But my note here was um, if injuries are going to be a long-term issue, I put that question in there. But what I liked about this was his comparables. So they, as part of the coverage, they 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 talked about his comparables. But his comparables were Mark Brunel and Steve Young. Solid comparables. Uh, you know, offensive juggernaut. That I was going to say that, that, that was the thing, right? The offensive juggernaut is 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 to me is actually more impressive than Steve Young. Let's be real. Although although Steve Young was also a left-handed quarterback, so I think that's part of the reason for that uh, for that comparable. But yeah, I think that I mean. That's pretty high praise. It is fair. That's right. So here, um, number six, uh, the Los Angeles Chargers. And I got it right this time, but that's because I wrote it down here. So the Los Angeles Chargers drafted uh, you know Justin Herbert. Sorry, before we talk about Justin Herbert, you think it was funny. I was As you said that, I'm like, don't you mean San Diego? No, no, no. I wrote it down. San Diego will never to... die for me, Carlos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, they just they drafted Justin Herbert. So, you know, fair enough. You, you, they, they probably needed another quarterback in there. So I, that makes sense to me. I had no issue with it. There were a couple of quarterbacks that teams were looking at, and Justin Herbert was one whose stock seemed to be rising late into the draft. So that's fair enough. Um, and then after that, I really don't comment on any of these until number 13. Uh, so Tampa Bay traded up one spot to get an offensive tackle, uh, Tristan Wills. So they're loading up, obviously. Obviously, they got Gronk. Well, yeah, they they're really back. going for it. I, I mean, it. That, I still say that division is going to be very, very – the NFC South is going to be very, very interesting this year. Yeah, you got a 43-year-old quarterback. You basically have to throw everything but the kitchen sink at it to hope that it's good. I. Here's the thing. I, we'll see if this plays out, but this could be 
it could work out great and Tom Brady could, you know, be vindicated. It's like, but my argument would be like, do you realize that you went to the franchise? You basically got everything you complained about for years in New England. Where now they gave you all the toys to play with. They gave you Gronk done. They gave you and Bill Belichick and um, and Skip Bayless in his traditional fashion. He's like, oh, Bill Belichick got fleeced on the deal with Gronk. He's like, what are you talking about? He 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 had an asset that was genuinely worthless. Gronk was the twenty four seven WWE champion. He wasn't going to get. He was quote unquote retired. He got picks for a retiree. If Gronk is able to play great, but he also lost weight because he was quote unquote retired, and Gronk has spent the majority of the last year partying. Yeah, I you know what? Anybody who thinks Bill Belichick gets fleeced clearly doesn't understand his evil genius. But it's not just that. Like let's let's get away from the evil genius for a second. He traded an asset that was genuinely worth nothing to him. He had the rights to Gronk, but Gronk wasn't going to play for New England. He was quote unquote retired, but he traded them the rights. He go, okay, fine, sign with him. And and what happens if in week one he goes out there and gets hurt and he's done for the season? He, Bill Belichick got a draft pick literally for nothing. Yeah, take it, man. You might as well. It's an asset for Belichick. That's why Belichick agreed to it. Otherwise, you think he's going to give anything Tom Brady for free? He goes, well, I'm not getting anything for this asset anyway, and nobody else wants him because he's not going to play for them. So you, if if Tampa Bay wants him so damn badly, then give me a pick, and you can have and you can have the piece of paper that says you have the rights to Gronk. You figure it out. Yeah. So that was the that was kind of the big ones that stuck out to me. For the most part, the like I said, the draft was an interesting attempt. I under the circumstances, I don't mind what the NFL tried to do. I'm okay with it. It wasn't tremendously compelling though, and. This maybe before we get into the uh, the Green Bay draft pick, which we'll talk about. There's there's a lot to dissect here. There's a lot to break down. But before we do, let me ask you a question. All right. Based on kind of what I described to you, because at the end of the day, it was basically Roger Goodell being there between picks, uh, reading them out, and then they went to like a Zoom call where they did the traditional kind of analysis with some clips from college and all that business. I genuinely felt that unless you're a fan that likes being physically there with other fans. I really felt like as a TV viewer, I missed nothing. I could see that. I mean, obviously, I can't personally comment on that from a personal standpoint because I didn't watch it. But I, I, I don't see why, you know, all the potential extra, which isn't even that much. It's more just, you know, shots of the crowd cheering and things like that, you know, or booing. Yeah. Right. It's a lot of pomp and circumstance. Like, I get it. It's an event. But at the same time, do I need to watch a camera follow the draftee from the draft room, walking down the hallway, walking up the stairs, hugging Roger Dell and taking some pictures? Only if they, you know, did it where they, you know, started like body slamming people or they went like Terry Tate office linebacker style as they got to the stage. That would be all right. I'd, I'd sign up for that. But otherwise, yeah, and how often do you get that? Yeah, how often do you get that? Never. Exactly. So, so I'm like, you know what? As a TV viewer, I'll be honest. If you could, if it's online, maybe you cut down the time between picks and kind of speed this thing along a little bit. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. It's not like you need that much time. Like, hopefully by this point, you've already made up your mind. Like everybody knew when the draft was going to happen this year, and they knew you didn't have to prepare for the pomp and circumstance. I guess the only other pick that maybe is worth discussing outside of the Green Bay one, well, not discussing, but um, Dallas ended up getting uh, the wide, one of the wide receivers they wanted. Uh, the name escapes me right now. I'd have to look it up. It's like CD Lamb, uh, wasn't it? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Which is which could potentially be interesting, but they still haven't signed their quarterback. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, sure. Oh, yeah. Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Yeah. So as soon as they get that figured out, maybe I'll care a little bit more about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, they got a weapon. Now, ready for another segue? Speaking of teams who needed wide receivers, all right, let's talk about my Green Bay Packers. So uh, are you uh, rubbing your hands together, Dave? Are you ready for this? Oh, I'm ready, Carlos. Please tell me there's some kind of random reference to HD in here. 
Brandon Ruffin's HG, yes. Uh, look, here's the thing. I- I'm torn. I'm torn, Dave. I'm legitimately torn. I, I need your help with this. Okay. I-, I can't do the I can't do the angry rant because, like I said, I'm torn. Um, there's a part. There's a part of me, and by part of me, I mean 99% of my fiber and being, who is a real life troll. I am literally a life troll. I troll life and people in it. And from that perspective, I can very much appreciate this Justin Love pick because it is genuinely trolling everyone. Green um, <laughs> Bay Packer fans. That is true. Yeah. So that part of me is like, I, I, I get this. I, I would do this. I would literally just mess with everybody. We're going to do exactly the opposite of what you want and what you think you need. The Green Bay Packers needed two things. Let, let me say this first, and then I'll talk more about Justin Love. So they needed two things. They won 13 games last year. They were 13 and three. Counting the playoffs, you could say they're 14 and two against teams that were not the San Francisco 49ers who crushed them twice. The thing is, the um, the issue with the San Francisco 49ers was that San Francisco had a very simple but solid game plan against Green Bay. Green Bay was winning these games by smoke and mirrors. I was with you and watched, I think game one was against Chicago, I believe. That's correct. We did watch that live together. And it was mutual offensive ineptitude. It was only because Chicago sucks so bad that eventually Green Bay was able to win that game, but they couldn't generate any offense to save their lives. And by the time the season was over, what you were really looking at, now people are looking at you know Aaron Rodgers saying, like, is he in decline? It's like, you know what? Maybe he is. But I don't think he was as in decline as the statistics would indicate. And part of the reason I say that is because he was coming off a couple of years where he was injured. That's a, that's a factor. But here's the other factor. Outside of Devontae Adams, who's the next who's the next receiver on that team? Uh, that guy with the, like a bunch of names. You, you might as well have said the guy with the hair. But like, this is the problem. And realistically, what should have happened, and my fantasy football team will attest to this. I was going to say, I was hoping there was going to be a reference to fantasy football there. You're damn right. And what should have happened is Valdez Scandling, he should have been the number two guy. And he was primed. Like, he was a young guy. He didn't he didn't need to have the pressure of being the number one guy. Devontae Adams was there for that. And Devontae Adams was great. He even was hurt for a little while with turf toe, and he still managed to put together respectable numbers. He didn't quite get to 1,000 yards receiving, but that's because he was hurt. But when he was playing, he was very good. And Aaron Rodgers trusted him, and they were able to make plays, and all that happened. Now, here's a trivia question for you. I think I have to look up what the number two was. It might have been Scantling, but it might have been somebody else. But who do you think the number three receiver on the Green Bay Packers was this past season. Jimmy Graham? Aaron Jones. Okay. That's bad. Yes. Do you understand? Like, that's not good. And by the way, the next two receivers after Devontae Adams, Devontae felt just under 1,000 yards receiving, but he would have cleared 1,000, I think, comfortably had he been able to play the whole year. But after that, the next receivers, none of them cracked 500 yards. Right. The word we're looking for here is the opposite of good, Dave. The opposite of good. So offensively, they need help. They needed weapons, right? They needed some kind of weapon because they, because you look at the team and you say, okay, what do we do to beat them? Oh, stop Aaron Jones from running and stop Devontae Adams from catching. Okay, and then what? And then we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Because Valdez Scantling might make a big acrobatic play, but then he'll drop three balls. And that's basically what happened the whole year. And it just never materialized. Now, they were able to win games because their defense was solid. It was improved, but they had one glaring weakness. They can't stop the run. Yes, that, that is kind of a big weakness there. Yeah, and what did San Francisco do? They ran the ball down their throat. And at the and in the playoff game, in the playoff game, you know, Jimmy G basically got to do the Trent Dilfer 2000 Ravens special. Hand off the ball and stay out of the goddamn way. Yeah. Yep. It was the simplest game plan in the world. And guess what? It worked to perfection. And they creamed Green Bay. How did they do it? It's like defensively, there was no guessing. 
they're going to run the ball until you can stop them. And guess what? You couldn't stop them. So they ran. So they ran the ball, ran the clock, controlled it. Basically, Jimmy G didn't have to do a damn thing, and they crushed Green Bay in a walk. Yeah, yeah. And that's despite the fact that on paper, if I take it, if I just look at it, because you knew it was coming, Carlos. What's that? I said at least it didn't hurt because you knew it was coming. Yeah, and I called that ahead of time. And the thing is that uh, you, all you have to do is watch the team. If you just looked at the record, you're like, oh man, yeah, they got a chance against San Francisco. I, I was like, no, they don't have a chance against San Francisco. <laughs> no. And now the thing is, again, if you look at it just on paper, uh, they were one game away from the Super Bowl. That is 100% true. But they had two glaring weaknesses. And for years during the entire Aaron Rodgers era, and this is where I'm going to get into Jordan Love now. This is It's coming now. So this whole era, the team never built a complete team. It was always the offense is great, the defense sucks, or the def- or the offense is starting to you know waver a little bit. We don't get them help, and the defense still sucks. The consistent was the defense sucked. That, that was the thing that kept being a problem over and over again. Yeah, you couldn't rely on them to hold it down when you you'd get the. The 2015 NFC Championship is like the case study. It is the one that made me bang my head against the table five years ago. And the reason why is because Green Bay was in position. They should have gone to the Super Bowl that year. There was no excuse for losing that game. And they lost because of bad coaching, piss poor defense, and the fact that they couldn't hold a lead that they were holding comfortably. Their special teams were garbage. Basically, everything that could have gone wrong in the fourth quarter went wrong. Yeah. And they never fixed it. And now we're and now we're at the t- now we're in the part of Aaron Rodgers' career where he can't put a bandage over it anymore. He's just not capable. So this is the time where you get him some help. This is where you give him the Tom Brady treatment. You say, "What do you need to be successful? What can we do to help you do what you do as best as possible?" To say, "What can we do to make you a better version of Peyton Manning in his last Super Bowl, where he where he won the Super Bowl despite the fact he was no longer Peyton Manning?" Yeah. Aaron Rodgers is nowhere near that decrepit. No, no, not at all. But th- that makes it even more shameful that you don't get him even the minimal amount of help in order to actually advance the cause forward. So now that brings us to the first draft pick where the Packers traded up to get Jordan Love out of Utah State. Yeah. Like I said, I'm of two minds. Mind number one, the trolling part of me, appreciates this from a content standpoint. And do nothing for one second that ESPN and Fox Sports 1 and all of them did not get mileage content, hashtag content, out of this thing. Oh, yes. But now the other side of me, the more logical uh, Packer fan side of me is like, okay, I'm irritated because you didn't – I don't have a problem with the concept of thinking about the future. But there's two problems with this. Number one, Jordan Love is not Aaron Rodgers circa 2005. He's just not. Yeah. So now that isn't to say he doesn't have talent and potential. I think he does have talent and potential based on what I hear. I'm going off of what I'm hearing. But his last full season in college, he threw 20 touchdowns to 17 interceptions. So he is what we would consider a project, which means he should not. If the NFL season goes off without a hitch and plays this year, which is in question, I don't know, but let's say it does. Let's, let's be positive and let's say it does. He shouldn't play a damn snap outside of maybe in the fourth quarter cleanup duty. He shouldn't touch the damn football in a regular season playoff in a regular season game for a couple of years. Yeah. And if that's the case, if that's true, then how in the world does that help Aaron Rodgers today? Well, it doesn't. 
Yeah. And that right there in a nutshell is the problem. It's not that it's a bad idea to do something to try to secure the future, but it literally is the future. If everything goes according to plan, he should be sitting for a couple of years. Aaron Rodgers ended up sitting three years under Favre before he got to take over the reins. And when he took over the reins, he was he had his struggles in his first season, as a rookie does, and then he figured it out and they won a Super Bowl eventually out of it. And they should have gone to more Super Bowls, It's but management kept screwing this up. And the problem is the whole argument after the first round, the immediate impact was, uh, or the immediate reaction was, oh, we'll see, you know, this is a wide receiver deep draft. Let's see what happens with their other picks, which is, you know, fair. You can draft somebody in the second round or the third round who might be good. Okay. I have the other uh, Green Bay Packers 2020 draft picks, Dave. Would you like to know who the other draft picks are? Oh, please do. I will give you through round seven. I will give you all the picks right now, and I'll read them off quickly. In the second round, number 62 overall, running back, A.J. Dillon out of Boston College. Third round, 94th overall, tight end, Josea Degara out of Cincinnati. Fifth round, because they didn't have any in the fourth round, because they traded the fourth round pick to move up to get Jordan Love. 175th overall, linebacker, Kamal Martin out of Minnesota. Sixth round, 192nd overall draft pick, offensive lineman, John Runyon out of Michigan. Sixth round, 208th. Jake Hansen, center out of Oregon. 209th, the next pick. Simpson Stepniak, offensive tackle out of Indiana. 236th overall, safety, Vernon Scott, TCU. And 242nd overall in the seventh round, edge rusher, Jonathan Garvin out of Miami. So where, where are the receivers, Carlos? Um, I didn't name one, Dave. Oh, my. Oh, my. Every single pick through the seventh round, there wasn't a single wide receiver on this. There was one tight end. <laughs> Everything else was was a center, offensive tackle, linebacker, at least linebacker. Okay, great. So you had two issues to address, and you didn't even touch one of them. I'm supposed to believe, as a Packer fan, apparently Funchess is supposed to be my solution at wide receiver. Maybe they just are thinking ahead of everybody else, and what's actually going to happen is that they're going to draft the they drafted all these offensive linemen, and they're actually going to turn them into receivers. It could happen. That right there is a good old-fashioned playing 5D chess. I haven't seen that kind of 5D chess since, um, you know, the AAF folded. It's a long con, Dave. The AAF folding is just a, it's just a ruse so that the XFL could fold, and then they'll bring it back. Hey, That's 5D chess, Dave. I'm down with that. Yeah. Tom Dundon is playing us all for fools. But, like, no, seriously, like, I – at this point, I, I've taken my time to sit down and think about it. The reason I'm not ranting and raving is because I know this management team, they're stupid. <laughs> they're, just, they're just so dumb. I can't even get upset about it because they're dumb. Well, you know, when they just fall into your lap, you got to take them. It's it's so bizarre, the whole thing. It, it's I don't have an issue with any of these picks. I don't know enough about them to say if they're good or bad. The, the tight end could be very well good. You know, Josiah Degara. I don't know. The running back, AJ Dillon, maybe he's good. But I'm looking at these draft grades and the best the highest draft grades they've given start at round six, B minus, and then the seventh round picks, B minus and B. The highest pick, the highest rated picks, according to CBS Sports, are the later are the picks after 192nd. Jeez, your top picks are not rating nearly as high. Jordan Love was got a grade of a D, and that was your 26th overall pick you traded up to get. Yeah. So one more thing I'll say about this, and this is just kind of summarizing the whole thing. Do you know how long it's been since the last time? The Green Bay Packers drafted a skilled offensive player, which a quarterback counts, in the first round. The last time they drafted a... a, a How many years it's been since the last time they drafted an offensive skilled player in the first round of any draft? I'm going to go with 15. It is literally 15 years. There you go. After 15 years, they finally drafted an offensive player in the first round, and it was a quarterback 
who is a project, who if everything goes according to plan, we will not see for two or three years. And you haven't or more. addressed- Or more. Yeah, and you haven't addressed anything in the present. I'm sure Aaron Rodgers is sitting there being like, you know, I, I can only imagine what's going through his mind right now. But my question, and this is kind of what I'm thinking about, I'm wondering if he's as angry about the quarterback pick as he was about the fact that he doesn't have any wide receiving help. I, I, I feel like it's like 5% irritation at the pick, and then 95% irritation is like, okay, but you followed it up with nothing. Yeah. That makes it worse. That's true, right? It's like, you you know, it's, I don't know. And, and teams do, it's not like they're the first team that's ever done this, but it's like, you know, when you have a glaring need at a certain position, and then you don't go get that position. Like, what yeah. the hell are you thinking? Yeah, and the, the and this is the problem. Like, going into next year, unless something major changes, the only thing that has ha- changed as far as wide receivers are concerned is that I've got Devin Funches. That's my big That's my big pickup for Woo. wide receiver. Woo? Literally. That, that's that's all I got. So it's like, I'm like, I, I don't even know what to do with this team. Like, I have no... Uh, it, you wouldn't shock me if they're like 8-8 eight eight next year. Again, assuming they play a full NFL season. Like, we're doing all the caveats. Like, assuming they do. Like, if they regressed and suddenly the defense, if everybody realizes what I already know, run on them. They can't score enough to beat you, so run on them. Yeah, like... I don't know, man. Yeah, so next year could be... This year could be a disaster. And there's no reason to believe next year will improve. Like, you've done nothing to improve the present. The future is in doubt because your whole premise here. Uh, remember, and this is very important that people understand this. It's, this isn't the first time um, that the Packers drafted a quarterback as a project where they thought maybe he could be the future. Can I give you another quarterback they drafted as well? Sure, please do. So, um, Actually, let me correct myself. They didn't draft him, but they've traded for him, who is going to be a guy who they thought had some potential. Deshaunty Kaiser. Okay, sorry. No, no, no. I'm talking about an attempt at a project. Deshaunty Kaiser. Yeah, okay. Okay. Like, dude, really? (laughs) This team doesn't know. The only time this team has actually, outside of Aaron Rodgers, and uh, basically it's Aaron Rodgers and Bart Starr are like the only good quarterbacks this franchise has ever drafted. Brett Favre was a trade. That's true. Yeah, he because he was drafted by Atlanta. Yes. So it, the 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 whole thing with the Packers and as far as quarterbacks is concerned is the way that I look at the Toronto Blue Jays draft history. The best players in franchise history, almost none of them were drafted. Almost all of them were trades. So it's like every time they talk about oh the draft, the draft, the draft, it's like you guys aren't good at this. You you have no idea how to evaluate talent at this positions. So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with this team. It's like so this is what this is what's interesting about it is that okay, I could get really upset about it, but here's the thing, Dave. Sitting down right here at the end of April 2020, there's a really good chance my team is going to deg- is going to, you know, regress this year, be maybe like a 500 team, maybe they'll be a little bit better. Um they'll be kind of mediocre on offense still because nothing has improved and um assuming injuries don't become a problem they'll they'll regress anyway maybe they make the playoffs maybe they don't make the playoffs and then my defense is still technically about the same hoping that somehow um they learn how to stop a run yeah this is not something to look forward to yeah and i'm i'm months and months and months away even in best case scenario seeing a team that is pretty much primed to be mediocre bring on the 2020 nfl season dave <sighs> All right, let's move on, man. Let's let's go to something else. You just depressed me now. Uh, hey, hey, listen. When it co- when it comes to this show, we enjoy ragging on each other's teams. But it's like, do you even feel like ragging me? Considering I just laid out that my team is already doing. Don't actually, because because <laughs> they've done it for you, man. The team has just pounded enough on you. It's just like you know, it's like kicking somebody when they're dead. Like, what good does that do, right, man? No, like you know what? 
in, in I'm glad you like what well, let's put it this way. This is all I'm going to say. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you like the sport of football that you genuinely like football because you're going to at least be able to watch football and enjoy football. The Packers probably aren't going to be playing, but you're still going to be able to watch football and enjoy football. Yeah, and that's uh, that's really the that's really the major takeaway from this is like it's a good thing that I like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't buy the damn package because this is just sadness. It is the valley of sadness. Yes. <sighs> anyway, let's talk about something more fun, Dave. Let's talk about a winner. <laughs> I like it. That's good. You, you, your segue game is on point lately, buddy. I got this, man. I got this. All right. Let's talk about the Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. We both got a chance to check that out as you slowly descend into madness and start thinking like Carlos. I reactivated my Netflix account for this because I thought, you know what? This is fascinating to me. I remember the Jordan Bowles. Before we get into the documentary per se, let's do this. What are your recollections of the 90s Bulls? How much or how little did you see or hear about the Bulls when we were when it was happening the first time? Well, I think I mean I wasn't a huge NBA fan, let's put it that way, uh at that point in time. Obviously, uh you know, I would have been, let's see, through the championship years, I pro- I would have been if you start at 91, we're talking about eight years old for both of us. Okay. And and the last dance season would be about 14, 15, because 98 was the end of the last season there. Right. And I think we didn't we enter we entered high school in 1997. Um, That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, some good years there in which you could potentially have watched some basketball. But, uh, you know, so here's what I remember. I remember always wanting to play the Bulls or be the Bulls whenever I played NBA Jam. Sure. I, I remember... Uh, you know, I remember the Bulls being the team, right? Like that was a popular thing. That was, you know, if you had a jersey, you probably had a Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls jersey. Uh, you know, that was what people talked about when they talked about basketball. And if you're into basketball, you were probably a Chicago Bulls fan because Toronto didn't have a team at the time. Uh, and, you know, like their closest, you know, Buffalo didn't have a team. So there wasn't a natural sort of, you know, and the Knicks, other than the one year, I mean, actually, they had some okay years in the '90s, but they never won anything. I think they, they had some decent teams with um, with Patrick Ewing yes. there in the '90s, where they competed and they competed with the Bulls, where they had real chances to get somewhere as well. Right, but but really, it was it was you know Chicago, Michael Jordan, and you know Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, uh, and then everybody else in terms of like you know what I mean. Like if you talked about for me talking with my friends, whatever we talked. Michael Jordan, you talk Scottie Pippen, you talk Dennis Rodman, and then you kind of ran out of things to talk about because that's who you talked about. That's who you cared about because the Bulls were the team, right? If you were talking, you know, watching a show and people were talking about basketball on like a sitcom and they're making a gag or whatever, it was somehow involved in the Chicago Bulls, right? Like that, it was kind of just everywhere. It was pop culture, but it was also, you know, the basketball lightning game, but it, it transcended just basketball because Michael Jordan was so good. Right. He transcended a lot of things. Now, part of that, I mean, not a huge part of that, but part of that was the fact that he tried his hand at baseball for a year. And, and, you know, he tried to be the multi-sport athlete. Obviously, we all know how that went. But the greatness and and the, you know, I mean, six championships, man. Like you can't like you can't deny how amazing that was. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a couple of points I want to make. So you've made some good points there. That's great. Uh, and it, it was popular culture. It was part of that. And in the in-between years, uh, between his return to basketball, you also had the Space Jam movie. Yes. Which was Sorry. which was pretty and popular. You can't forget Space Jam. But Space Jam was a pretty popular movie for the era because remember, you're combining it with Looney Tunes. And also, so you've got a kid audience along with people watching it. And Michael Jordan was in there who gave a lot of legitimacy. And they got a lot of NBA stars in there for cameos. 
So it wasn't like they were just throwing stuff together. Um, so that was kind of a big deal in terms of, because think about it this way. Um, if you're talking about like the shoe culture, so like shoes and people who love their, their basketball shoes, um, they're a Space Jam Jordan 11s. They're literally called the Space Jam 11s because he wore those particular shoes during the movie. Yeah. So that like t- tells you about the popularity of Michael Jordan in general. But then basically everything he touched at that time, outside of the baseball career because he kind of sucked, but outside of that, everything he touched turned to gold. It's our marketing and he was a, and he was a sensation at that time. And the documentary does a good job talking about this. But one more thing I'll say before we get into the documentary proper is that uh, as far as NBA Jam, Dave, I didn't pick the Bulls. Can you guess who I actually picked an NBA Jam when I was playing? Oh God! See, I I kind of want to. I wish it was the Knicks. No, but I don't think it is. I think you picked the Lakers or the Celtics. No, no, I picked the Cleveland Cavaliers because I could pick Mark Price and I could hit all the three pointers. That you know, you you are you're before your time, man. I know. I basically invented the modern game of basketball. All y'all stole my idea. I was on this. Oh, Once again, I am not appreciated in my time, Dave. This is the problem I have. True. That I will give you that. You are very underappreciated. It's it's just facts. But uh, let's talk about the documentary a little bit. So the documentary plays into a lot of what you're talking about, how Jordan became a cultural phenomenon, So, which is 100% true. My memories of those 90s bowls were very similar to yours. I will say, though, especially in kind of that late 90s period, I was a lot more about hockey. I was really into it because you know my, you know my love affair and affinity for that late 90s Dallas Star team. Yep. Like I, I was in on those, I was in on those guys. So that's what I was mainly focusing on. And I know most of my sports debates because I knew uh, Detroit Red Wing fans and I knew Colorado Avalanche fans. And it was basically us making fun of each other. That was the majority of like high school for me um, because our teams were trading Stanley Cups back and forth. And occasionally there'd be the New Jersey Devils fan who would chime in. But for the most part in the nineties, we were kind of trading championships back and forth. And if you're playing in the Western conference at that time, it was like Colorado, Detroit and Dallas would beat each other to a bloody pulp. And while I acknowledged and appreciated basketball for what it was, basketball was kind of the pansy sport that you played if you weren't tough enough to play hockey. So the um, but from a skill level, you have to appreciate it. And obviously, you acknowledge that the the you know the Jordan led Bulls were winning championships. So you could observe. So even though I wasn't running the circles that were that interested in basketball, it didn't mean that I was not able to see the amount of Bulls merchandise. And to your point, um, it wasn't the Raptors when they first got there. They had some popularity because the Raptors, I think, started in 95, 96, I want to yeah, say. 95 was when they got the team. And I think it was like, was it 90, 96, 97, their first season? Something like that, yeah. So what I would say, though, and playing into the Bulls thing as well, kind of with the Raptors, the first game that kind of put the Raptors on the map a little bit was when they played at the Dome against the Chicago Bulls and they were able to draw like a gigantic crowd. And I remember that. Oh, yeah, 95-96 uh, was their first yeah. season. And you know what's interesting that I find in just connections in this? Uh, yeah. That game. Because obviously that game gets talked about and, and Jordan was on that team. And it was a big deal at the time. It I was think huge. it was a 72-win season. Get, but get this. Chicago had uh, potential. They had the ball last and could have had and could have won the game. Guess who missed the shot? It wasn't Jordan. Oh, who missed the shot? Yeah. They had, a, they had someone go for a three-pointer at the end and missed it. That would have won Steve the Kerr? game. Yeah. Steve, Steve Kerr. Kerr. Yeah, yeah, because I remember he was the guy, I think, for that kind of a play. If you're going to run a three-point play like that, I think Steve Kerr was their guy. Yeah, and he missed it, and and Toronto won, and obviously that's a big big deal at the time, and it's still a a very popular memory among Raptors fans. Yeah, and I think also that was a 72-win season. That might have been one of the 10 losses. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I could be mistaken about that, but it wouldn't surprise me. But that, that's what I think added an additional significance. If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But I thought it was part of that 72-win season. And if it was one of the 10 losses in the 72-win season, that was an even bigger deal because that team was almost unbeatable for most of that season. Yeah, well, that's arguably the greatest the greatest basketball team ever. I, I, I very much enjoy uh, breaking down all-time great teams that people call and then making fun of them. Uh, part of the reason why I enjoy uh, making fun of Tom Brady so much. But I, I think I'm going to give that 72 and 10 Bulls team the the nod because they did go on to win the championship. The 73 win Golden State team fell short. I can't give it to them. The 73 wins is impressive, but you got to finish yes. the job. Otherwise, yes. I can't you are correct, Carlos. That was one of their their losses, and they lost they lost by one point. Toronto beat them 109 108. And that was huge for an early Raptors franchise just to have a win. If you were one of the teams that actually beat them that season, that was like a feather in your cap. Orlando, Portland, Indiana, Denver, Golden State, Miami, New York. <laughs> That's just the New York Knicks, the Raptors, um, uh, Charlotte, and. I don't know what that team, WSB, Washington. Oh, Washington Bullets, that's why, because they were still the Bullets then. That's right. I think they should just stay the Bullets. I would have preferred that. So there you go. Yeah, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of losses that year in that record. That team was that team steamrolled the league, and it was kind of, it played into the legend, right? Like it came back from retirement, and then they steamrolled the league for a year. And then yeah. they went on to win two more championships after that. So let's talk about the documentary, though. It talks about, obviously, the buildup, um, and then it kind of goes back and forth in time. I like the way that the documentary does the narrative because if I was wondering how they would get to 10 episodes and I think they did a very good job laying the groundwork in episode one and then in episode two, focusing a lot on Scottie Pippen, which is very interesting, kind of filling it in. Did you have anything that – a lot of the stuff I remembered, obviously I wasn't observing too closely, but I'm familiar with it and we're of the age where at least we watched it. Obviously the kids watching it now, are it's going to be all brand new to them. But is there anything in particular that struck you, maybe something you didn't know or something that you got a little more insight on that you didn't think about the first time? Well, obviously, I think the 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 behind the scenes and and, and management and how management was like, this is it. We're going to blow it up after this year, you know, mm-hmm. right? And and that aspect of it kind of, you know, is, is sort of what stands out to me is obviously the people who made the movie have decided that Jerry Krause is the villain of the movie you know, kind of thing. And I, and I found that interesting and, and, and that aspect. And I found I went, the other thing that I, I've really enjoyed, obviously it's only two episodes so far that I've watched, but the candidness of the people of Michael Jordan, of Scottie Pippen and, and, and how, you know, real it feels in terms of how they're just saying how it went and how things went and, and went down and everything. And, and it, it, the honesty that's there. I think that's fair. Uh, one point I'll make, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think it is interesting when it comes to documentary, and this is a point I wanted to make, and I want to get it on the record, and I want to get your thoughts on this. The way that I treat a documentary is, and we're well-versed to be able to speak on this piece, the way I treat a documentary, I treat it as a video version of an essay. Because when you build a documentary, what you're really doing is you're telling a narrative. And I think a lot of people don't understand that an essay or a term paper, whatever you want to call it, is really a narrative. It's not enough to be like, you usually have a point you're trying to make, in the first, you know, opening section of it, you're you're laying the groundwork. Usually, you're saying like maybe you give a little background or whatever, and then you kind of lay into these are the points that I'm going to try to hit on. And then as you go through the body of the paper, you're basically laying out your argument piece by piece, bringing in you know data, bringing in uh, points made by people, citing sources. And as you're going through it, 
you're following kind of the narrative that you already established in the first first section of it. And then in the end, what you're doing is you're concluding. You're saying, based on this, this, and this, and this, everything I just went through, this is what we ended up with. So in, indirectly or directly, you're making an argument. And even when a documentary tries to be kind of neutral, at the end of the day, it's still making an argument. And you're still ter- telling a narrative story, obviously through video and through pictures and all that, and interviews, obviously. But the thing is, the narrative story that it seems that this documentary has undertaken is kind of the, this team was broken up before its time, and this is why, and the villains are the two Jerry's. So Jerry Krause and um, the owner, um, Jerry... Uh, Reinsdorf. What's his name? Reinsdorf, thank you. But the thing is, and I'm okay with that, that's fine, but I do think it is, I, I think it's important... I think it's worth watching. I think people should check it out and really look at it and dissect it a little bit, but take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. The only reason I say so is that they've had this footage for over 20 years. This footage was shot at the contemporary time, and they've held it for over 20 years because the only way it was ever going to be made into a documentary is if the NBA agreed to it, which most likely the NBA would have been amenable to doing it years ago. But Michael Jordan also had to agree to it. And when you're Michael Jordan is agreeing to it, that means that Michael Jordan is going to have a little bit of say in how this story plays out. So um, yeah, well, he's that, got all, and that's what happened, right? That that mm-hmm. that they were willing and ready to release this years ago, but Jordan yes. didn't give the okay until this year. Exactly. But uh, because of that, though, I, I'm I'm making the point that. We have to bear in mind that because Jordan agreed to it, and good for him for agreeing to it, that's awesome. I think it's very important to keep in mind that because of that, Jordan has every incentive to point because the, the Jordan's agenda here is obvious. He wants to make clear, I would have kept going. We could have kept this going. I wanted somebody to beat us, which is fine. That's perfectly within his reason to do. Although I don't I feel it's a little disingenuous because it's it's an automatic thing. This is Skip Bayless special right here. This is like built for Skip Bayless because he's been making the same argument for years. Oh, they would have won eight straight championships, 12 straight championships, 150 straight championships. I'm like, no, they wouldn't have because number one, they would have been worn down from doing this over and over again. Yes, Scottie Pippen still had gas left in the tank. Jordan certainly would have had gas left in the tank. But Dennis Rodman got injured not long after that. Like The pieces would have started coming apart. And I don't know if – think of an NBA. Let's put it this way. All we have to do is go maybe not far into the future from the end of the season. I don't remember how long it was later, and I don't think it was far later. Phil Jackson, not long after, went to the Los Angeles Lakers, and then who had by that point had Shaquille O'Neal not long after this, and they had Kobe Bryant, and they were able to ring off three more championships over there. So it's one of those things where it's like, yes, obviously if Phil Jackson stays in Chicago, that changes a lot of fates. But what do you think a um, if you get a competent coach in there, it doesn't Phil Jackson, I think, was the missing piece that really helped that Lakers team build that three peep. But if you get a competent coach, you're telling me that the LA Lakers retooled with a Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant combo couldn't have potentially stopped the Chicago Bulls dead in their tracks. Yeah, it very well could have happened. Yeah, and that's assuming, of course, they get to the final because it's one of those things you learn as you go on. There's a reason why anything beyond a three-peat is very difficult. And the Golden State Warriors, a year ago, learned this lesson the hard way. It is really hard to repeat three, uh, you know, to repeat and then repeat again because injuries happen. Players get hurt. Their egos get in the way. All kinds of stuff can happen that can dismantle a team that otherwise seems unbeatable. And it's not like outside of the 72 and 10 season, it's not like the Chicago Bulls were always unbeatable, but they had the requisite amount of grit to get it done. The other aspect of it also is that I think Michael Jordan is um, the, the beneficiary 
of a time period where I think other players were a little bit more tolerant of the style of, let's call it leadership, that Michael Jordan has, because I don't know if a more uh, one of the other things that's thrown in there is like, oh man, imagine what Jordan would do in today's game. Well, I think he would be an extremely skilled player, and I think he would alienate a lot of teammates, and I don't know if he'd be able to get enough players to play with him to be competitive over a period of time in the modern NBA where you have malcontents left, right, and center. Imagine Michael Jordan playing with Kyrie Irving and how long it would take before Kyrie Irving would punch him in the face. Yeah, or vice versa. Or here's a good one for you as well. Think about this one. Imagine if Michael Jordan had Kevin Durant. First time Michael Jordan rips into Kevin Durant. How does he respond to that? Yeah. Passive aggressive posts on Instagram, Twitter. What do you think? Well, who knows, right? I can't imagine it would go well. Yeah. So I don't know. I think Jordan was the right guy at the right time for his era to be able to be a dominant player, to have the right team. I do think there's a little bit of uh, validity. And one of the things that, like I said, the reason why I say take it with a grain of salt is that keep in mind, uh, Jerry Krause is dead. He can't defend himself. So like it's it's convenient timing on Michael Jordan's part that he waited long enough where Jerry Krause is now dead. Who's going to defend Jerry Krause? Oh, there you go. And I mean, Reinsdorf really is the only one so far who's really had anything positive to say about him. Yeah, but the thing is, Reinsdorf has every stake in it as well because at the end of the day, we can blame... It's some people have started to mention it, which is good. I think they forget that the Bucks stopped with Reinsdorf. If he's the one, if he had said to Kraus, like, "Hey, make it work," Kraus would have had to do it. He was the one who allowed it to play play out this way. So it's like we blame Kraus, and the good, and like I said, the good news for Michael Jordan is you have to blame the dead guy who can't defend himself. And Reinsdorf is going to be like, "Yeah, well, you know, I think he was kind of right." Well, of course he's going to say that because guess what? You signed off on the plan. Yeah, of course. So it's like you're, you're defending yourself as much as you're defending him. You're, you're defending yourself through him. And if somebody doesn't agree with you, then you, they can basically blame Kraus and Reinsdorf gets to walk off seemingly scot-free. I just think it's convenient that you know this waited until like the guy is, you know, is dead and nobody is in a position to, to back him up at all. Exactly. Okay. So one other thing I'll throw in here then. I like the second episode. I like the Scotty Pippen focus. I think the way they're going to extend this out into those episodes is that I think it's I, – I wouldn't be surprised if we have a Dennis Rodman uh, episode. That would be kind of interesting. And a Phil Jackson episode, which should also be kind of interesting. Um, is there anything in there that you would be curious to see told? Um, because we've got eight more episodes, so they could break this up in a multitude of ways. Well, I think the one thing I, I would be slightly interested in um, – would be the uh, Tony Kukoc angle. Are you familiar okay. with that at all? A little bit, but elaborate. So he play. He he's a Croatian, and he played for the Croatian national team, uh, who the the dream team beat in '92 twice. So I okay. think, right, and it was it was one of those that uh, you know there was a bit of smack talk, and he was the best player, and basically he was absolutely shut down by by Jordan mostly and, and some of the other players on the dream team. I watched a documentary about the dream team this week uh, too. Okay. And you know, and then obviously he comes to the NBA. This is before he was in the NBA and then he comes to the NBA and he ends up becoming Chicago bull, you know, and, okay. and, and that aspect, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. is it the, the most compelling storyline? Uh, probably not, but I think it's something worth potentially noting or at least talking about. So we'll see if they, they go down that road or not. I think that's fair. I think uh, I think there's enough there's enough meat on this bone that they could go in a bunch of different ways. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier. And uh, by the way, did you agree with my analogy that I feel like a documentary is very much oh, for like sure. an essay, for sure, like a visual medium? Absolutely. 
is very narrative driven. And at the end of the day, every documentary is always going to have a narrative. You know, Ken Burns documentaries would not hold the sway they do if interspersed in it, there wasn't like an underlying theme that you could sense as you watch through it. Even as they break down the different eras and all that, there's always something. There's an undercurrent and a style that gives you, and each documentary uh, director is going to have their own way of trying to tell the story, but you are telling a story. And I think people need to remember that and take take it with a grain of salt because you're, you're getting contemporary uh, folks. You know, Scotty Pippen's got his agenda. Michael Jordan's got his agenda. You know, Ryan Zorn's got his agenda. Everyone's going to say things a certain way. And um, that might be their opinion, but I want to quote the dude on this one. It's like, well, that's just kind of like your opinion, man. Yeah. But that's but that's basically how that plays out is that when you look at it is – if you, t- if you ask me to tell my story right now, I might give you one answer. And if you ask me to tell my story in 15 years, I might take a different angle on it. I might have better perspective. Or I might realize, you know what? This will make me kind of look bad. Maybe I'm going to leave out some stuff. When I also think – I think one of the other things that I'm interested in, and I guess some of this has happened already because I think – has the whole thing aired on ESPN? No. It's, uh, it's broken up into two episode blocks over uh, five weeks. Okay, so it's the same. So it's it's airing sort of simultaneously on Netflix and and uh, ESPN at the same time. Sort of. Uh, so it'll be so the next episode will be tomorrow. We're recording on Saturday. It'll be on Sunday on ESPN, and then basically at midnight or Monday, Netflix will get the next two episodes. Okay, I got you. So here's something I'm then here's something I'm interested in. All right, <laughs> people's reactions to what they see, right? So our players from the team. Uh, either either people that were on the Bulls or other people that are featured, or you know, coaches, whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what did they have to say about it? So, as we're as we're talking here, Kukoc has actually been somewhat critical of the first two episodes and has been defending Kraus and basically sure. saying that you know the way Kraus was talking to him about the team was was not in a bad way at all, and he's basically like, you guys, mm-hmm. you got to come here, you got to play with these guys, you know, talking up everybody. Uh, yeah. You know, so so we'll see what else goes down, but that is would be an interesting aspect to see to see where that goes, or if anybody. I mean, I doubt it's going to happen with with somebody like a bigger player like Michael Jordan or with uh, Phil Jackson or whoever. But if somebody says, "Hey, you know what? That's not how it went down. You know, this is what they said in the thing," but you know, like I wouldn't be surprised. Rodman, you know, comes out with something about something, maybe. I, I mean, you know, he's a little bit off kilter, if you would say, that could potentially do something like that. Or even loose cannon. That was really what I wanted to say, right? That that he could potentially yeah. come out with something. So who knows? But but that would be interesting to see, you know, how people from the the team or the storyline react to things going down the line. That's fair. I think that's reasonable. So one more point I'll make on this, and then we'll move on. But I, I agree. I think you're you're hitting on a good point here. So I want to make sure I emphasize this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna co-sign on this one, Dave. I'm co-signing. Very important to this point. I think it's critical, and the reason why I spent so much effort here during this conversation emphasizing that a lot of a documentary is the narrative that the people making the documentary choose to follow and flow through. And we have to remember that Michael Jordan signed off on this, so he got a say in what a- makes air and what doesn't make air. A lot of it is assassinating Jerry Krause. But what keeps being forgotten is that there is some validity to his notion about organizations building championship teams. Everyone points to his record post-Michael Jordan. And fair enough. I think that's a legitimate counter-argument. However, let it be said that the people tearing him apart the hardest on this documentary, including Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, who obviously had personal issues with him, and Phil Jackson, who had personal issues with him, 
So Scottie Pippen has never has never done anything in an executive capacity in the front office. Phil Jackson was a disaster when he actually tried to take the reins of a team in the New York Knicks. Now, mind you, the New York Knicks were a disaster before him, and they're a disaster after him, but he didn't exactly do a bang-up job as president of basketball operations, and Michael Jordan has owned a team and basically run it into the ground. So Michael Jordan maybe has no clue how to actually build a franchise. He knows how to play basketball, and he's right that a basketball team with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and coached by Phil Jackson is going to be potentially great no matter who builds the team, but there is something to be said for building the team. Well, some, I mean, regard, right. Like you have, you know, the best players, you should be pretty damn good, but somebody yeah. has to get those players on the team and under contract, whether it's through the draft, free agency, trade, how, whatever. Somebody's got to yeah. do that job. Yeah, and Jerry Krause drafted Scottie Pippen. He wasn't involved in drafting Michael Jordan, let's be fair, but he did draft Scottie Pippen. He did bring in Dennis Rodman. He did hire Phil Jackson and promote him to head coach. So it's like we're almost whitewashing. I was like, well, this team would have happened no matter what. So ignore the general manager. And it's like maybe the general manager wanted too much credit, and I think that's the narrative theme they're going with here. But I I think – Which is a fair point. But to say that they don't deserve any credit obviously is, is completely wrong too. Yeah, we're overcorrecting here. I feel like this is a Michael Jordan vehicle to overcorrect it and basically give himself credit and pretend he's the general manager that built this team. When it's like, well, dude, now you own a team and you can't build a, a, a mediocre team. Your team blows. Yeah. So it's like maybe Michael Jordan doesn't know how to build a basketball team and maybe he should stop criticizing and stick to playing basketball. He can't now, but maybe he should have focused on that piece. But like I said, I'm not here to knock Michael Jordan, but I'm just trying to say like I think it's interesting that – the angle of attack in the first two episodes are literally like, Jerry Krause is an idiot. Jerry Krause is an ingrate. He doesn't understand how the team was built. I was like, maybe he did understand a little bit, but maybe he did get into, like everybody else, success makes you kind of fool yourself. Maybe he thought he could build the team no matter who was on it. He was wrong. But at the same time, the players are now the who are coming back and doing these interviews are kind of pretending that, oh, it would have been good no matter who built this team. It's like, well, I don't know about that. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think the two needed each other more than they'll ever give each other credit for. Obviously, Krause is dead, so he can't do anything about it. But I think the players – it's interesting the angle that some of these players are taking where they're just pretending that this dude basically didn't exist and he had no factor in this thing, which I think is irresponsible. But it's just kind of like their opinion, man. Yeah. All right. So I think I'm good with that one. Are you ready to talk some UFC, Dave? Yes. Are we going to talk about Fight Island? Not bad, not bad, not bad. It's 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 almost fight island, but uh, no, you gotta you gotta bring the intensity in there. I liked it though. Uh, it's a good first attempt. You're you're getting you're getting it. I appreciate it. So, I appreciate it. So first order of business, uh, Dana White in his infinite wisdom is still trying to have UFC 249. So right now the tentative plan is to have it on May the 9th, so in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be in Florida. And they're trying to have three consecutive fight cards in Florida. I think. Maybe the other two are going to be pre-recorded in order to broadcast later on. So it'd be May 9th for UFC 249, May 13th, and May 16th. So they kind of batch them, uh, similar to what uh, WWE and those ones are doing now. Because it's funny, WWE got itself declared an essential service to try to do live broadcasts. Which is absolute bullshit. Absolute it, bullshit. 100%. Uh, it was a flat-out political bribe. And full stop. Um, but WWE is not essential in anything. I'm sorry. And I'm a wrestling fan for going back decades. And like the world will not end if WWE doesn't bra- doesn't air. Please. 18, uh, there's 18 and a half million reasons that, uh, that Florida suddenly decided to make them essential. But um, the point is that 
they're able to broadcast, they're able to do so. Dana White can kind of use this loophole that Vince McMahon built for him in order to do some broadcasting. But I think they're pre recording it because they really want to get it done in short order, and that gives them potentially weeks of programming. But speaking of the beloved Fight Island, that would potentially be happening in June. That's the current quote unquote game plan. And I think, according to some of the stuff I read recently, he's, I think they're building an octagon at a beachfront. Nice. I mean, that's kind of cool. But at the same time, Still insane? Yeah. <laughs> Still kind of batshit crazy, yes. Uh, you know, I, I was fully on board with the Fight Ireland concept. Better. I like that one. I like that one. Uh, look, I, at the end of the day, I'm I'm fascinated. I, I want to see I want to see the attempt. I, I think it's irresponsible and stupid, but at, you know, I'm kind of at the point where uh, let, let me let me quote another great man, George Carlin. I, I kind of like it when people die, Dave. Yeah, fair. I I, I know well, what you're it, saying there. But here can I quote a great man? By all means, Dana White needs to give it up. Carl Sacozar. Yeah, no, it's it, it really is truly desperate. But here's the thing: I'm on board, and the the whole George Carlin thing. By the way, if any of you ever get a chance, there's a there's a couple of different George Carlin uh, comedy albums, and I think it's the last one. He he explains this little shtick. He does it more eloquently than I can. So check it out if you want to check it out. But the point is that. At the end of the day, these folks are adults. They should know by now what a good decision is and what a bad decision is. And if the money's worth it to you and you're willing to take the risk, I do the same thing with UFC that I do with NFL or a lot of other more dangerous sports. I'm not feeling bad anymore. Well, to be fair, I never felt bad. I'm, I'm kind of a bastard. But I don't feel bad for somebody who you know gets concussions and then becomes a vegetable for the rest of their life. Because you, as long as you understand what you're doing, then I don't feel bad for you because you made a decision. It wouldn't have been the decision that I would have made. I, I kind of prioritized my health in that situation, but full value to you if that's what you decide to do. But when I'm watching the game, if somebody then snaps their neck and dies on the field, it's going to take me another six seconds to forget about it and move on to the next play. Not to be a bastard here, but like, I don't care, guys. Do whatever you want, but understand what it is. And I and I can have two things at the same time. On the one hand, I don't care. On the other hand, I can if somebody says, oh, we need to stop this, and I'm like, yeah, technically you should. I, I, I agree with you. And if you decide that that's the case and the NFL doesn't exist in 20 or 30 years because of their own ineptitude, I have no issue with this. But everybody just needs to understand that, hey, look, you can't have it both ways. I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm acknowledging both angles. I don't care about the health of your players. But also, if for their health, you decide to make it fix the sport or change the sport or ban the sport, I'm okay with that too, because it makes logical sense. Yeah, exactly. The way that plays into this is if the fighters then contract it and then give it to their family members and the family members die or something, guess what? I'm going to spend zero seconds feeling bad for you. Zero. Because you all need to understand what's happening. And if you want to sue Dana White for his life, knock yourself out. I, I can back both. I can, on the one hand, not feel bad for you and your family. On the other hand, if you decide to sue Dana White into the Stone Age, please, by all means, feel free. Because Dana White is, is culpable for this too because he's the one pushing for it. Yeah. So that's just kind of my take on that piece. Um, as far as UFC is concerned, that's really all that's new. Uh, we've got some dates, potential, you know, tentative dates, and, you know, the progression of said island. I don't, I want to say it two or three times per episode. I don't want to wreck my throat oh, you, here. You, you can only do so many to make it still sound good. Exactly. You want to keep it impactful. Give the people, leave the people wanting more. But uh, as far as that's concerned, that's kind of fair. Now, I think... Uh, Segwaying beautifully into it, still UFC related. I think you had a documentary that you were looking at a little bit uh, about Ronda Rousey, I believe. Yeah, so it's called what's this? It's Through My Father's Eyes, I believe, is what it's called. And yep. and it's it's interesting because uh, it's about obviously Ronda Rousey. It's about her rise, uh, you know, her her time, her t- 
relationship with her father who ended up committing suicide. Spoiler alert, if you didn't already know that. Uh, and then her time is doing judo and into the Olympics and then through MMA until her first MMA defeat. That's sort of where it ends. Uh, and, and they got some really good good footage. <laughs> and, you know, here's the thing. If you like, if you're into, you know, interested in, you know, personal stories, you're interested in Ronda Rousey, you're interested in MMA, I highly recommend that you check it out. If you're not, if you're into like really good filmmaking and that's what you want, don't watch this. Uh, it's directed by and narrated by Gary Stretch. Uh, and I didn't know who that was, so I did a little bit of research. Uh, so he's a former boxer out of the UK, had a fairly successful career. Uh, and then he ended up working with Wanda Rousey and and worked with her on her, her boxing for her MMA. <laughs> the funny thing is, so he interviews everybody in the movie. And he's in the movie in other capacities too, which is fine. Sometimes I feel it's more about him though than it is about Ronda Rousey. So there'll be an interview with, you know, one of the um, Armenians that she had trained with or whatever. And, the you know, in normal time, the camera's on him, right? And all of a sudden, they'll just go to Gary Stretch, like, you know, and he's wearing like a white beater for like no reason. And then I'll go back to the interview. Like, I mean, it's still all the interview, but it's like, why did you just show that shot of him? It's just like, hey, I'm on camera. See, I'm here. And now back to the interview kind of thing which is weird. Um, and, and some of the sort of the, the narrative of the piece in times kind of goes wonky and I find it's kind of weird. But it, in terms of, you know, telling Rhonda's story, it has a lot of really good interviews with her on it. And she's very candid. She's very candid about her father's death and what that, you know, meant to her throughout her life and, you know, her relationship with her mother and the judo and the Olympics and, and all that, uh, you know, which is, which is really interesting. So again, Fan of Ronda Rousey, fan of MMA, personal interest stories, sports documentaries, check it out. Good filmmaking, and that's all you want, you'll find it somewhere else. I think that's fair, and that kind of goes back into what we were talking about earlier about be careful the narrative structure of a lot of these documentaries. Take them with a grain of salt is what I say. And if you're looking, you know, I should mention this, if you are looking to check it out, it is available on Netflix. Beautiful. Now, I will say also that we're, we're talking Netflix. We're talking Netflix Canada because there is some region differentiation between the different ones. So just to be fair for everybody, um, but I'm sure it's in the in the US Netflix and other international Netflix as well. That is kind of interesting, though, that, uh, well, I guess it makes sense because if it's your documentary, hey, I'm going to feature myself in my own documentary. I don't care if it's about me or not. So uh, that's fair. I get that. So that's good. That's a good uh, hashtag quarantine content recommendation for you. Um, I will make one one of my own, and then we'll get into our closing, you know, a little closing spiel here. One thing that I would that I've mentioned before already in a previous episode, the last little bit, is that SB Nation, the SB Nation YouTube channel, is doing a history of the Seattle Mariners, and the episode four dropped this past week. And I would say definitely check it out if you haven't already. I'll try to include a link in the show notes and the description in the YouTube channel if you check out that archive version out. I will say the first three episodes were very interesting, but the fourth episode. It gets really fascinating because you're talking about the era where once you see it and once you watch it, and I'm going to make Dave watch it because it's in, it's incredible, is that even though it's a very simple video the way they do it, the wealth of talent those mid to late 90s Seattle Mariners teams had was utterly disgusting. And even within that video, there is a little bit of a reve- a couple of shocking reveals that I sort of remembered, but it's been such a long time. Obviously, one of the one that concludes the episode, I won't spoil it for everybody. The one that concludes the episode totally makes sense, but there's one in the middle where there's there had been a possibility where in another alternate timeline, there's another very um, potential Hall of Fame caliber player who could have joined them that didn't. 
And they already had A-Rod. They already had Ken Griffey Jr. They already had Randy Johnson. They already had Edgar Martinez. But there could have been more. All right. I'm looking forward to that. That's that's how frightening this this team was potentially on paper. And the fact that they couldn't get the job done and couldn't actually win outside of that one famous playoff thing that basically saved baseball in Seattle, it saved baseball in Seattle only to leave it on terminal life support for the next 25 years. Oh, my. Yeah, definitely. So I, I will be checking that out, Carlos. It's definitely worthwhile. So I leave that to you as my hashtag quarantine content recommendation. So I think that's it for myself. Uh, Dave and I have basically been talking for an hour and a half. So we, we, I think we, we've got your content here, folks. We took care of it for you. I'm going to quickly go into our shameless plugs here at the end. The social media is still eh, progressing along. I'm trying to include some clips in here. I did include some information on a couple of a recent episode. I'm going to try to include a little bit from this one as well. But the big things are going to be iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, you can check out an audio version of this that you're listening to right now. As far as the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast YouTube channel, you can check out archived versions of every episode, including this one, but also check out episode 50 where I did a video version of it. Um, That's something I may try to bring back at some point, but we're going to have to work on the technology. It's a lot easier for if I'm doing a solo pod, then I I set up the camera, I make it happen. Totally doable. But if we're going to get two of us on the screen so that you can look at Dave's face while I make while I make fun of certain things, well, that's going to need some technology. We'll figure it out. Maybe his coaxial cable, he can dig some more miles underneath somewhere, and maybe we can get that working too. But that's for the future. For now, though, uh, for myself and Dave, that is uh, episode 51 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.